morning. You've got your Bibles in front of you. We're in the book of Acts again this morning. So you turn to page 1047 and we're going to read verses 1 through to 20. Just a warning, it's not coming up on the screen. So you will need a Bible in front of you if you want to follow it. So try and get us to keep our Bibles open so we're then looking at what we're looking at. So, from verse 1. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord. He confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot amongst the Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to ill-treat them and stone them. But they found out about it, and they fled to the Lysonian cities of Lystra and Derbe, and to the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the gospel. In Lystra there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lysonian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go on their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews from Antioch and Iconium won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered round him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Shall we pray? Lord, as we look at these amazing events in the book of Acts, and the, the way that Paul and Barnabas were able to share you with people who knew nothing about you at all, Lord, I want to pray that in our day and in our time, we might see great numbers of people come to faith in Jesus. So, Lord, as we look at this passage, would you inspire us? Would you challenge us? And would you equip and empower us to go out in the power of your spirit to share Jesus? And we ask it for your sake and for your glory. Amen. Well, today is the day when we're remembering the persecuted church. We're remembering those Christians around the world who suffer as a result of their faith in Jesus Christ. But I think it'd be, it'd be wrong to remember that in isolation today without thinking about those terrible events that happened on Friday night in Paris. I don't know how you feel today, but I mean, that I just feel like I don't know what to say. I don't know how we respond to such evil and such hate in the world. 
other than to say, you know, we still trust in a God of love. We still trust in a God who is all sovereign. So before we get into this passage, can we pray again for Paris? Can I ask us to stand? Let's pray. And let's ask that the church there will be strengthened and that people will hold true to the gospel. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that all nations ultimately will one day bow the knee at your throne. But this morning, we want to stand hand in hand with the people of Paris. And we we just want to say we, we can't understand this kind of evil. And Lord, we pray for those in emergency services. We pray for those whose job it is to bring compassion and healing in that place. Lord, would you just equip them? Would you give them the right skills, the right words, the right attitude to have in that situation? And Lord, we pray for the church in France. Lord, France is largely a secular country, but there are Christians there, people who are passionate about you. And we pray for those people, Lord. Give them an unswaving hope in the gospel. Give them a firm trust that you are Lord, even amidst the darkness. And Lord, may the light of your gospel once again burn in that land. So Lord, we ask for your presence to be very real. And we ask for us here that we will not become fearful, but that we will put our trust in Jesus, in whose name we ask. Amen. Amen. Do sit down. Now, I think the correct response, isn't it, when we see persecution and we see suffering, is that we have compassion on people and that we pray and that we read our Bibles and that we see that Jesus is still Lord, even in darkest times. I was reading this week on the Open Doors website just about some of the statistics about the suffering church and the persecuted church. You know, in Syria, 40% of the Christians have fled the country. 40%. You know, we can't get our head around that. You know, in North Korea, the church is really up against it. Through parts of Africa, in Nigeria, there are so many places in our world where there is suffering. And that should break us. That should bring us to our knees. But it shouldn't surprise us. Because we get back in the book of Acts, what do we find? Is that right from the early days of the church, the church has been persecuted. Suffering and persecution are things that have always happened to Christians because... The gospel is such good news. The gospel actually polarizes people, and we'll find that in this passage. So in this passage, in chapter 14, we find what Luke will record as the seventh and eighth persecution events in his book. There are going to be 13 or 14 in all in the whole of Acts, depending on how you count them. But Jesus told us, didn't he, that actually the gospel would cause division. We looked at one passage last week that said that. We're looking at another one today, Luke 12. 49 to 52, I'll just read this. It says, I've come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on there will be five in one family divided against three in another. Three against two, and two against three. The gospel doesn't let people sit on the fence if it's preached effectively. And look what we find. If you've got your Bibles there, look at verse 1. Paul and Barnabas start preaching, and their preaching is really effective. They communicate the gospel accurately and effectively, and many people believe. Now, today, if you're a preacher, or if you're a home group leader, or if you're a children's leader, or a youth leader, or in any other way you share the hope of the gospel with people, it's important that we prepare, that we do it effectively, that we do it in line with Scripture, 
Because people need to hear the truth. People need to hear the gospel as it comes across. And faith in Jesus is costly. We find that in this passage. You know, when we we say that Jesus is Lord of our lives, it doesn't mean that we're just signing up to being nice. It doesn't mean that we're signing up to following some some rules or regulations, but it's about a life encounter with the risen Jesus who turns our life upside down by grace. Not through what we've done, but through what God does. And this is what Paul and Barnabas start preaching. Look at verse 3. They speak boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace. See that word, grace there? By enabling them to do signs and wonders. The message of grace. The message of Jesus, who dies on the cross, who pays for forgiveness, who enables us to be friends with God, not through what we do, but through everything that he has done. And we see this message goes out. It's effective in its preaching, but it's also accompanied by miraculous signs and wonders. You know, I believe in a God who is the same God of the book of Acts. And the God of today is also a God who can perform miraculous signs and wonders. But what do we mean by that? It's all right saying those words, but what does it mean? Well, I think as you look through the book of Acts, miraculous signs and wonders are those things that only God can do. They're not things that we can engineer. They're not things that it can make it look like they're happening. But it's only things God can do. What's the greatest miracle of all? Go on, somebody can shout this out. Resurrection. Resurrection. Not one you can do on your own. Any other ones? Salvation. Salvation. We can't save people. Only God can save people. There are things that only God can do, these miraculous signs and wonders. And there are others in the book of Acts. We're going to come across a healing here when somebody who was lame gets up and walks. But these things point to God. But when we read this, it's very difficult to know, well, how do we respond? You know, how do we respond as Lynn Baptist Church towards the end of 2015? What is there here for us? Well, it's two months today since me and Claire first started here in the church. It seems years ago. I don't know why only it's two months. And during that period, you know, it's been great to get to know so many of you. If you you still haven't sort of come and introduced yourself, we've probably got another six-month window before that gets embarrassing. So do come and say hello. Um, Come and see me on Wednesday. I had a queue this Wednesday. That was fantastic. So do come in. If you're free, come in, have a chat, have a coffee. That would be fantastic. But apart from knowing people in church, we've also got to um, know people at the school gate, and we went round for a bonfire party with some neighbours. Now, when I'm speaking to people, it's, it's quite interesting, because I have more or less an open door to talk about my faith. Because what do people ask you when they first meet you? Where are you from? What do you do? So when I get to the what you do question, I have two choices. I either tell them or I tell a lie. <laughs> now, you'll be glad to know I don't do the latter, so I do the former. So if I'm saying to somebody, what do you do? Oh, I'm the minister of Lynn Baptist Church. Open door. Totally open door. Now, I can do with that what I choose, or what God instructs me to do, or I can just leave it well alone. But actually, what's been really interesting is, as I've been saying that to people, nobody has come back to me negatively. People have said, oh, that's interesting. Oh, how fascinating. Oh, that must be an interesting role. And quite a lot of people have said, oh, what a lovely church that must be to be a minister of. But I'm thinking, as I read this passage, should that be the kind of response I get as a representative of the Christian gospel? Should I be looking for the kind of response from people that allows people to just sit on the fence and say, oh, I bet that's a nice cushy roll. <laughs> what a nice job you've got there. What a lovely bunch of people. Paul and Barnabas 
They're preaching faithfully the gospel. They're preaching this message of grace. They're teaching about Jesus. And what happens? They get a polarized response. Either people go with it and are saved, or people are antagonistic towards it and they start persecuting the church. Should we, as a church, get the response of having people sitting on the fence? You know, there's a problem with sitting on a fence. You get splinters. Should we be allowing people in limb to get splinters through sitting on the fence? Or should our proclamation of the gospel, should the way we share Jesus, actually encourage that response? Yes, this is the truth. Or should people then say, no, actually this isn't? But notice who responds in this way. Who is it who builds up the trouble for Paul and Barnabas? Well, it's instigated by some Jews. They stir up trouble, and they then bring some Gentiles in there. And it's interesting to see that it's the Jews who start the stirring up of the trouble. Because here, um, in the first century, first century Judaism was a very formal religion. You know, as you read through the New Testament, you, you get this impression, don't you? It was about the Pharisees. It was about rule-keeping. It was about dotting I's and crossing T's. It was very solemn. It wasn't full of joy. It certainly wasn't full of grace. It wasn't full of forgiveness. And here, you get Paul and Barnabas coming into this group of people, preaching about grace, about the undeserved favor of God, poured into people's lives, and saying that Jesus is the Son of God, and he rose from the dead. So what happens? Well, it goes against their understanding of life and their religious practice. It totally grates against where some of these people are coming from. The more I think about this, the more I think, actually, does the gospel that we preach great against society? Does it demand a response from people? Does our life as a church, is the Spirit of God so evident in our midst that people can't help but think, I've got to respond to that? Not just so I can sit on the fence and say, what a lovely bunch of people. You know, as a church, if we do lots of things, but we actually aren't bursting with joy and amazed at the grace that God has poured into our lives, will it actually rattle people? Will it actually rattle people? You know, people aren't often rattled by formal religion. But people are forced to make a response when they see lives that have been transformed by grace and they see it being accompanied by things that only God can do. That demands a response. If people don't see a church on fire for Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, and amazed at what God is doing in our midst, then we do become just a pleasant community facility. And it made me think, you know, what do we want to be this morning? Do we want to be a group of people who demand a response on behalf of Jesus? Who preach a gospel that cannot leave people sitting on the fence? You know, we need to cause Lim a problem as an area. We need to cause Lim a problem. We need to make people realize that actually there is a gospel that demands a response. Paul and Barnabas, what did they do here? Well, they caused Iconium a big problem. They caused this city a big problem in how to react. Look at the, the, the sort of the journey that they take. It starts off in the synagogue. They start off in the place of Jewish worship, the place that they would always go and start preaching. Where did they end up by the end? With a city divided. We're not told what happens in between, but it's gone from synagogue to city. You know, as a church, are we going to take that journey from church, if you like, us here, to community? From being looking at ourselves to looking outwards and seeing how best can we rattle the people of Lynn with the good news of Jesus? Are we going to preach that gospel 
that demands a response. We were in Ikea a couple of weeks back. We live an exciting life, don't we? <laughs> but we were in Ikea, and this shows just how exciting I am. We were, oh, sorry, I forgot to put my first thing up there. There you go. First thing was all about persecution. <laughs> Second thing was about worthless things. Here we go. Right, children's menu in Ikea. Just look at that for a minute. If you're part of the grammar police, your blood will be boiling at the moment. But you see how some English teacher has gone along. I'm guessing it's an English teacher. And put no exclamation mark next to that second apostrophe. We know it's so easy to do, isn't it? To put our um, commas or apostrophes or things in the wrong place or put a plural when it should have been a singular um, or do what actually Darren did to me yesterday and send a text, not to my mobile phone, but to my home phone. So I pressed the button on the answer phone for a message and this robotic voice came out that was Darren saying this random message. It took me back. Me and Claire were sat there for half an hour working out who it was. Anyway, that's a totally different thing. But we can do the wrong things. Just slightly wrong and everything starts to unravel. Slightly wrong and it changes the meaning. Just keep that in your mind for a moment. Paul is off to Lystra. A man is healed. Does this remind you of an event earlier on? in the book of Acts. You know when Peter and John were going to the temple, they met a man who, who was lame, and they heal him. The start of the Jewish mission, the start of the mission to the Jews in Jerusalem. Here in the early days of the Gentile mission, what do we get? We get the same kind of thing happening. We get Paul and Barnabas performing the same kind of miracle. They see a man who's got faith, and they speak to him, and he gets up and walks. But look at verse 11, if you've got your Bible there. See how the people respond. The gods have come down to us in human form. It's a bit like an Ikea restaurant moment. Close, but not close enough. Almost there, where you've got a plural in the wrong place, and Paul and Barnabas aren't Jesus. So it's way off, actually, when you come to it. You see, it's very easy to see God at work but then come to the wrong conclusions if you don't understand who Jesus is. Just seeing a miracle is not enough here to point people to Jesus. There needs to be the explanation of what's going on. And look what happens. They think Barnabas is Zeus, the king of the gods, and Paul is Hermes, the main speaker of the gods, the messenger of the gods. And the priests come out, and they're going to offer sacrifices to them. Now, we're probably reading this thinking, you know, in today's world, what is all this about? Why are they going to offer sacrifices to these Greek gods? Well, that was the culture. That was the, the mindset of people living there. They saw that some divine power had been at work, so what do they do? They attribute it to the only gods they know. And so they go to the highest god. Zeus is the king of the gods, so they attribute it to him. And they think, well, Paul must be Zeus. Paul must be this person. But they get it all wrong. You know, they lived in a culture that was, that was full of those kind of things, and they couldn't see the living God because of their culture. So instead of praising God, they praised Paul and Barnabas instead. And Paul then has to encourage them to leave behind these worthless things. Leave behind these gods who are not actually gods at all. What they've done is they've set up Paul and Barnabas as idols. They become things that actually take away the worship of the true God. You know, an idol in our lives is anything that we set up in place of God. Anything 
that diverts praise and worship away from Jesus onto either ourselves or onto something else. Now, it's very easy to make idols. I'm hoping none of us attempted to worship Zeus and Hermes. If you are, I am in church on a Wednesday afternoon. Do come and see me. But it is very easy to make idols of other things. It's easy to make idols of the stuff of life. You know, our houses, our cars, our careers. It's very easy to make idols out of other people. You know, we put people on a pedestal and we think that they're something and, you know, conversely, we're nothing or whatever it might be. And it's very easy to just make an idol of self-pleasure. You know, sort of looking inwards, trying to make sure that we're okay, becoming sort of self-obsessed. And objects can become idols so easily. You know, the stuff of life can become idols. You know, I was, I was thinking about this and thinking how easy it is to do that. I don't know if you've ever done this, but perhaps you've, you've done something well in life. And I could think I did this a while ago, and I thought, brilliant, I've achieved something. So instead of praising God, firstly, I start to feel in self-congratulatory mood. And then I think, I must treat myself. So I've already made myself into a bit of an idol, and then I treat myself by buying something as a self-congratulatory present. Am I alone in doing this, or do other people do it? Please make me feel better about myself. (laughs) It's something that is so easy to do, isn't it? And before long, what have you done? You've actually got now an object that is, if you like, the idol of the self-idol that you've made before. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to treat yourself. Don't, Don't hear me wrong. But I'm just giving an illustration of how easy it is to start setting things up that actually, rather than praising God, all our attention goes onto an object. And Paul and Barnabas are frantic that actually this shouldn't happen here. You know, don't point to us. Don't point to the Greek gods. But let's point to Jesus. Let's get the understanding right. But they have a big problem to overcome. Because they are dealing with people where they are up to. They're dealing with a group of people who only have a very limited understanding of what divine power looks like. And so in the end, we'll see them going back to basics. But you know, if we don't understand who Jesus is, if we don't understand what God is doing, if we're not immersed in the word of God and weigh everything that we understand about Jesus against the scriptures, we can actually, in our own way, end up in a verse 11 to 13 scenario where we start diverting worship to to some Christian speaker or to, to somebody we've heard on UCB or whatever it might be, instead of all the praise and glory and honor going to God himself. Last week, I was um, out walking by Lim Dam with our dog, and it was going dark. It was sort of really late in the afternoon, and I was down at the the far end from here, just right near the road, and I suddenly realized that the dog wasn't with me, (laughs) which was slightly worrying. Um, Normally, the dog is very close by. She may go off chasing a squirrel or something, but if I call her, she's normally there. So I turned around and called her. No sign of the dog. So I started walking back along the path. I must have walked for a couple of minutes, shouting, and still no sign of the dog. Eventually, I heard this rather pathetic whimpering, and I was thinking, oh no, what's she gone and done? So anyway, I eventually found her. She was down, having fallen down um, about a six or seven foot sandstone cliff. This is the actual place. I didn't take a picture at the time. Apologies, I had other things on my mind. But she'd fallen down onto a sort of little beach area, by the lake, and she couldn't get up. So, just so you can get an impression of what it looked like. Here you go, there she is. <laughs> Sat down there. So that, that was, the, those pitiful brown eyes were looking up at me. Now, 
I had no option but to deal with the situation as I found it. I couldn't go home. I couldn't leave her there. Claire says she would have done, but I, I, I'm not that heartless. So I had to deal with the situation. And what I had to do was I had to clamber down backwards, down this sandstone cliff, thinking, if I break my leg, I am not going to be in Claire's good books for quite some time. Anyway, I got down to the bottom. I had to literally pick the dog up, scruff of the neck, tail, and throw her up this, this embankment to get her up to the top. But anyway, I ended up fine. The dog ended up fine as well. But you know, it was just a reminder that actually, sometimes the realities that we face are not actually the ones we'd want to face. Yeah, Paul and Barnabas face a reality here with the crowd that is not an easy one to deal with. How on earth do you get people from a point of like wanting to worship Zeus and Hermes and thinking that those are the gods who've come down to pointing people to Jesus? How often does Jesus, in his ministry, deal with people in a reality that is not a good one, but is just the reality that people are living in? You know, we think through the Gospels, and you think of how often people are in a reality that is not a great place to be. They need a rescuer, but actually, that's the only place they can be dealt with. Think of Zacchaeus. You know, he's not down on a beach, he's up a tree. Think of the woman by the well. Or think of the woman caught in adultery. Or think of the thief on the cross. Or Jairus' daughter. You know, all these people who Jesus ministered to, he had to minister to them in their reality in the place where they found themselves. Now, I don't know where you're up to today. I don't know whether you're in a good place today. I don't know whether your reality is a good one. I don't know whether you're in a place where actually you are able to turn everything back to worship and everything will point to Jesus. Or actually whether your reality is something far more complicated and your life at the moment is full of stuff that is dragging you away from Jesus and pointing you in other directions. But you know the good news this morning is that Jesus will meet you where you are. Jesus will meet you exactly where you are. You know, U-turns in politics are often seen as a bad thing, aren't they? U-turns in the Christian life are actually a really positive thing. When we say, actually, Lord, this is my reality, and I need you here. This is my reality, and I need your grace in this situation. This is my reality, and I need you to meet me, and forgive me, and restore me in this place. So Paul, what does he do? Well, he speaks to the people with grief. There's a sense of grief at what they're doing. You know, this is just wrong. It's wrong to come and sacrifice and and sort of think that we're Hermes and Zeus. But actually, he sees this at a deeper level. I think there is, Paul's heart is breaking here at their lack of understanding of God. It's not just the outward signs of that, but it's it's the underpinning reality of what they're thinking. Someone once said to me, I can't remember who it was, I can't claim this is my own, it's far too intelligent for me. But it was this phrase, bad theology is a harsh taskmaster. Just say that again, bad theology is a harsh taskmaster. Misunderstand Jesus, and we can end up in very dangerous places. Misunderstand who Jesus is, and we will quickly end up in a version of verses 11 to 12. We will end up in a place where we forget grace, we forget what Jesus is about, and we end up in bad places. And we go round and round in circles. That might trap us in guilt. It might trap us in unforgiveness. But God is a God of second chances. God is a God who calls us back to him time and time again. They'd misunderstood a miracle. It led them in the wrong direction. But if we misunderstand Jesus, we too can go off down wrong avenues. 
We need to weigh everything against the word, don't we? Everything that we believe about Jesus, every concept that we have about how he forgives us and about what the gospel is about, has to be underpinned by the word of God. And so we remember this morning, just as Paul would meet these people where they were at, Jesus will meet us where we're at this morning. We don't have to put on a pretense. You know, we have no choice but to come to God as we are. And we have no choice but to share Jesus with people where they are as well. So what does Paul do? How does he share Jesus in this situation? Well, he goes back, as far back as he can go, really, to the very basic understanding of who made the world. He goes back to talking about creation. Look at verse 15. He says, you know, we're human like you. And then he points them to look at the world that God has made. And it's all about creation. Verse 17, he gives rain. We can experience that at the moment. He gives crops. He gives us food. He gives us joy. Those basic things of human life, those good things. Look at those. That is God's fingerprint on creation. That is God's testimony. You know, sometimes I think when we're talking to people, if we're talking to people who, don't, who have some kind of understanding that there is a God, but they're not actually quite sure who that God is. Perhaps Paul's model here is one that actually we need to look at. Going back to basics. Going back to saying, you know, God is a God of good things who desires to bless us in these kind of ways. But actually the reality here is very difficult for Paul. Look what happens. There's trouble again, isn't there? The reality for Paul is going to be one of persecution. The reality for much of the church today is one of persecution. The reality is that for many Christians, being a Christian is not something that is just an add-on to life. It's not something that allows them to sit on the fence. But it's a life-changing decision to follow Jesus, who they believe is the sovereign Lord. It doesn't leave us with a couple of questions, really. What reality this morning do you need to bring to Jesus? What is your reality today? Where are you up to? Are there things in your life that are actually taking you away from Jesus? Do you need to bring those as we come and remember Jesus in bread and wine in a few moments? What's that reality? And today, as we've had this um, focus on the persecuted church and we've thought about those impacted by terrorism, how can we pray for people in their reality? We have no choice but to deal with things as they are. But the good news is Jesus will meet us in those realities. Can I just pray for us and then we're going to come in a few moments and prepare our hearts for communion. Lord Jesus, I thank you that we don't have to put on a pretense to come to you. Thank you that we can meet you as we are. And thank you, Lord, that when we come in repentance to you, when we lay those things down that are perhaps at the moment stopping us from receiving forgiveness or or everything that you have for us, Lord, I thank you that you say that you will meet us. And Lord, I thank you that you you love us too much to leave us in those places of our own making. Lord, I want to pray for perhaps those of us this morning whose reality at the moment is a difficult one, who are struggling with different things in life. 
Lord, I thank you that you meet us in that place. Thank you that there is no need for pretense. But thank you that you promised to walk this life with us. So as we come in a few moments and remember bread and wine, we remember the greatest sacrifice that was ever given. Lord, keep us faithful to that gospel. Help us to be a church that doesn't allow people to sit on the fence, but preaches the good news in such a way that it invites a response. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you pour your spirit into our hearts and lives. For Jesus' sake, amen.